Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for September 18th, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Just over seven months ago, a fascinating new player entered the mix of the scholarly publishing world when the new open access journal Peer J published its first papers. Peer J's envelope pushing business model, under which authors pay a single fee for lifetime rights to publish, as well as its open peer review approach and its eye catching website, have formed the grist for a lot of conversation in the industry. I'm delighted to have Peter Binfield, the publisher of Peer J, on the line with me now to give us an update on where things stand. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much, Stuart. Well, as I mentioned, it's been about seven months since Peer J published its first paper and around a year and a quarter since the journal was first announced uh, in June 2012. At that time, people often referred to Peer J as, as a, uh, an experiment or even a radical experiment. How is that experiment going from your perspective as the journal's publisher? You're right. We, we originally launched ourselves back in June 2012. And I think people thought this was an experiment or a radical experiment, maybe from several different angles. You know, the business model itself is, is quite radical and experimental. It hadn't been tried before. But I think also just the concept of starting an entirely new journal and publishing company effectively from scratch, developing peer review, submission, publication software, um, forming an editorial board, forming a brand entirely from scratch is obviously something that doesn't happen very often. And I think was viewed with some questions. You know, would they would they be able to succeed? Would they be able to pull this off in in an appropriate time frame? And you know, I think definitely the you know, the history has shown that we have. You know, in that period, so sort of June 2012 onwards, we've we've hired some amazing staff, and we've built that software entirely from scratch. Um, all the infrastructure is up on the the cloud. It's all hosted on Amazon. We've managed to recruit an editorial board of over 800 people now, which includes five Nobel Prize winners, for instance. We've established ourselves with all the third-party services which support this infrastructure, things like Crossref, Clocks, PubMed Central, and so on. And we've been accepting submissions now since December. Coming up on nine, nine or ten months, we've been accepting submissions and publishing since February. So February 2013, we published our first journal articles. And April 2013, we published our first preprint articles, which also, I think, was regarded as quite an experiment. People often overlook, I think, that this isn't just a journal that we're publishing. It's a journal and a preprint server, PJ preprints. And that is something that has been sort of tried and failed several times in the biological sciences in the past, a preprint server. So, again, I think people were somewhat skeptical of whether or not this was the right time for a preprint server. And, and again, I think we've we sort of proved that out. We're flourishing in the preprint server. We're getting a lot of submissions. Uh, we're seeing other preprint servers launch. For instance, Cold Spring Harbor Press is uh, about to launch one in the next couple of months. So I think the performance has spoken for itself. You know, right now, September, we've published, what, about 150 articles in the journal, um, about 60 articles in the preprint server. Uh, we just published our first author survey. So we went out and surveyed all of the corresponding authors who'd received a first submission, or a first decision, rather, through the end of August. And we got, you know, an incredible response. We got a 51% response rate, which is really high for a survey like this. 94% of our authors said they were going to recommend us to their colleagues. Hmm. And, uh, and when we asked them how their overall experience was, you know, over 40%, 42% of authors described it as the best publishing experience they'd ever had. Mm, which oh, is, congratulations. Which is incredible. We're really, really pleased with that kind of feedback. 
another thing we just released was information on our speed. So we get first decisions back very fast, which, again, is something we're establishing a reputation for at the moment, I think. But, um, for instance, we get a first decision to authors with a median time of 24 days, which you know, is very fast. So um, seven or eight months in publishing, it's, it's going great, I think. Well, when people talk about Peer J, of course, they talk uh, about its business model. Uh, in particular, uh, the, the the notion that individuals can pay a single uh, lifetime membership fee that allows them to publish in Peer J. And also, I gather you're working with institutions uh, on plans that allow their scholars to publish in Peer J without an author fee. Um, can you tell us a bit more about about that aspect of how Peer J works and and what the uptake is looking like after after seven months of publication yeah and actually that was that was another question that we asked our author survey you know did you did you understand our our business model and the business model for us is that every co-author on a paper needs to become a paying member um they become a lifetime member and that gives them the right to publish their articles with us you know, forever thereafter for free there's three different tiers um there's a basic membership which allows people to publish one article a year for free um, that's $99. And then there's two higher tiers, which is an enhanced at $199, which is two articles a year, and Investigator, which is uh, $299. And that's the real all-you-can-eat plan, that you can publish as many articles as you want every year for free. So you know, it, it's an unusual business model. You know, it's, not, it's not the kind of thing you can describe in, in a single sentence. And yet um, the author survey came back again that uh, the vast majority of people had understood that model, had appreciated you know, how it worked and didn't have any issues with it. You know, again, the proof is in the pudding. So every paper we've published so far has had authors on it who have become members. Mm. Um, so you, you can see that people are voting with their feet. We've had several authors that have immediately latched onto the concept that they can publish many articles with us for mm. this one membership. So we, we've had many examples already of, of people taking out a, you know, an investigator plan and publishing three, four, five articles with us already in this time period. It's a great model, obviously, for people who um, don't have much in the way of institutional funds for mm -hmm. paying for a, you know, an APC fee, an article processing charge of, you know, which can be a thousand to three thousand dollars per publication. So, mm. from that point of view, this is a very attractive model. And then you, you also mentioned the the fact that we have an institutional part of this model, an institutional arrangement, and that's that's again something that's proving quite interesting to people. So the the concept there is that an institution, and usually that's a university library, would come to us and um, prepay for a, a block of memberships for its faculty. Hmm. And then as those faculty come to publish with us, our system recognizes that they're from that university and basically credits them with a membership that's been prepaid by the university. Uh, you know, again, we've had some great uptake. We've had the likes of Cambridge University in the UK, um, Berkeley, Duke, um, University of Newfoundland, Birmingham University, Nottingham University, Trinity. So th these are all current customers that have, have basically committed funds up front so that their faculty can now publish with us for free. And then as they come to us just naturally to publish, um, their membership is paid and then they can publish with us sort of thereafter for life. Um, so I think these people as well, the, the librarians, who tend to obviously be a lot more informed about these issues than, than just a, an average author, mm -hmm. The librarians are recognizing us as, you know, a, a very cost-effective way to get their faculty into the habit of publishing open access. You know, if they, if they as a library have to shell out one, two, three thousand dollars for every single publication that comes out of their faculty, mm -hmm. then, you know, they're quickly going to run out of funds, open access funds. And 
and then they're in the same problem they're in with their, their current budget crunch. But, but this is obviously a much more budget-friendly approach. It's a lifetime membership, so once the author is in there, they don't need to think again about where they're going to get the funds from for the next open access publishing. Hmm. It just uh, it, it's already built in. I guess some people though have wondered a bit about how sustainable the model is with with, with this one time fee for all you can publish. You know how sustainable the model is over time. Do you have any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, you know, it's a valid question. This is a, a new model. You know, we, we've got our own modeling of the model, and we believe it's it's highly sustainable. In fact, we think we're on track. You know, to become sustainable next year. Hmm. Before the middle, before the middle of next year, we should become sustainable, um, and then from there onwards, you know, we are self-sustaining effectively. The, the question I think often becomes: Well, surely, what happens once you've signed up? You, everybody in the universe, as a member, you, you've run out of revenue. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a, a I can I confess and, that was sort of what occurred to me. But of course, yeah, everybody so, in the universe is a large number. So. Exactly, it would be a nice luxury problem to have, wouldn't it? Um, so, <laughs> Uh, you know, there are there's, there's roughly 10 million academics in the world publishing well over a million articles a year. You know, we're, and we're just one publisher amongst tens of thousands of publishers. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unless something incredible happens, there's, there's very little chance of us sucking up the entire universe uh, mm-hmm. to become members. Uh, but even if they did, you know, people retire. So new academics are born, uh, old academics are retired. Um, science progresses one one funeral at a time. <laughs> <That's> a famous <laughs> quote. Um, but, but, you know, so there is some churn in the marketplace, even if you've signed up everybody. There's assumptions in the model, of course, of how many co-authors there are per paper mm-hmm. uh, and, and things like that. So there's, there's various assumptions in there. But also, I think there's a very big assumption in the model of the um, the cost side of the equation. So so I guess people are worrying about the revenue side. But but if you can cut the costs down dramatically, mm-hmm. then you, you don't need as much revenue, of course, to, to sustain yourself and, and to grow and thrive. And so we've done a lot of work on reducing the costs in the system as well as you know the, the business model which generates the revenue that, that makes it sustainable. Is there anything specific that you can tell us about your experience with end-to-end publication costs? Uh, I mean, you, you pointed out that is an important part of the model. Yeah, I think there's... I think there's a lot I can talk about there, actually. It's interesting. You know, I've worked in many publishers over my career. You know, I've been in publishing for over 20 years. And I've worked at society publishers, um, large subscription publishers, you know, Springer, for instance. Um, I've, I've worked in social science publishers, Sage Plus, which is, you know, a very large open access publisher, and now PHA. So I've, I've seen this industry from many different angles, I guess. Uh, and I've also published books, actually, in reference works, so it, it's been a sort of long journey to get here. But I, what I've found very interesting with the point where I am today is, is the effect that a, a change in the business model or you know, the editorial approach can have on the overall structure of a company. So if you're a subscription publisher, for example, whose business, you know, you're in the business of protecting your content, owning the content that you publish so you can sell a subscription for it, um, you have to support entire department, you know, such as, you know, a sales department, you have to go out and sell that product. Warehousing, because you're, you're still a physical product as well. I mean, you've got a legal department because you have to defend your copyright. You, you've got an IT support department because you, you've got servers sitting in your basement rather than in the cloud. So there's sort of large chunks of the costs of perhaps a legacy company that, that exist only either to support the business model, you know, in the case of, for instance, a legal department defending copyright, or exist because it's a, a legacy company that's grown up with its own server farm in the basement and, and isn't able to switch to the, the cloud. 
Um, so if, if you look at that and start afresh with a, you know, a new online-only publisher which, which can look freshly at every aspect, and you have something like an open access business model where you, know, you don't need a lot of those extra departments, and then you can, you can strip a lot of the overheads and costs out of a company straight away. Then you can look at something like PLOS, uh, which is interesting as well, because PLOS is an open access publisher. It has started reasonably recently, roughly 10 years ago, and so obviously has a lot of those benefits that I just mentioned. But PLOS, again, has a different mission. So PLOS is a, you know, it's a not-for-profit. Part of its mission is to actually propagate open access. And so PLOS does a lot of things that aren't really sort of revenue-generating. You know, it has a, a director of advocacy. It, it, um, it has some very prestigious selective journals, PLOS Medicine, PLOS Biology. You know, it has products like PLOS Current that, that don't make any money. And, and so you know, they're doing a lot of worthy things that are loading costs into the company as well, mm-hmm. which, again, you don't need to do. You know, if you establish a company from scratch without all of those, as it were, loss-making parts, you can, you can focus in on the one or the, the bits that make revenue and have as low a cost as possible attached to that. And th- that's what we've done, really. Mm. We started from scratch with an online-only open-access business model. We, we only have one product, basically. It's the journal plus the preprint server. We don't load a lot of costs into the company. We don't have an office. I, I work from home, for example. Um, our engineers, my co-founder in, in the UK, actually work from a, um, one of these shared office spaces. We don't have IT infrastructure. Everything's in the cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's these kind of factors that, that you can really figure in and actually save a lot of costs in the system, which you can then pass on to the customer, of course. Well, PeerJ also has a particularly open approach to peer review. Uh, all of the reviews and even the Im- initial submission uh, are published with the papers, and you encourage reviewers to identify themselves, although you don't uh, require it. Um, I'm still seeing a lot of anonymous reviews in PeerJ. I wonder if you could comment on that. Do you see any, any differences or patterns between the anonymous and, and signed reviews that you find interesting? Definitely, and, and this is, this is an, again, another experimental aspect of what we've done. So we're, we practice something that we're sort of coining optional open peer review. Um, so open peer review can either mean that the, the authors uh, are made aware of the names of the reviewers, so the reviewers are not anonymous, or it can mean that um, when the published paper is, is produced, the entire peer review history, as it were, is published alongside the, the paper. And those are sort of the two elements to a traditional imagining of what open peer review is. We make both those elements optional. So as a reviewer, you're given the option of providing your name to the authors or remaining anonymous. And then as an author, you're given the option of publishing your entire peer review history alongside the paper or not. And it's an all or nothing thing. And what we're seeing is um, at the moment, roughly 45% of reviewers are providing their names into the system. So they're opting not to be anonymous. Uh, which means, I guess, 55% of reviewers are anonymous. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, about 85% of authors are choosing to publish their, their peer reviews openly on the, on the paper. And that proportion is rising rapidly, actually. Um, I think when we started, the proportion was, was more like 55-60%. But um, as people have seen it in practice and seen you know, how unscary it is, um, effectively, all of our authors now are, are choosing to go that route. It's quite rare now for somebody to, to say that they don't want to publish the peer reviews alongside the paper. So that, that proportion is rapidly rising. You asked, you know, is there, is there any pattern? I think one pattern we have seen, and we intend to do some analysis on this, um, we haven't dug into the numbers yet, but I can say, I think, anecdotally, looking at the peer reviews as they're coming through, 
Um, it does typically seem that when a, a reviewer wants to be critical, so when they want to recommend a rejection or a major revision, for instance, they're remaining anonymous. Um, <laughs> no real surprises which, there, I exactly, guess. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So, a, a major finding in psychology. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and, of course, the reverse. When, when they're happy with the paper, when they've got nice things to say, they, they tend to give their name. And, of course, it's not 100% in either direction, and we, we don't have the numbers yet. But I think I can definitely see that pattern, and I can understand that pattern, of Mm-hmm. What is interesting, I think, again with our system, is that it's the incentives we've built in to encourage people to provide their name. So if a reviewer does provide their name, then um, you know, they have a profile page that appears on, on the site, which can build up with the record of their contributions, as it were. So if you go to our site and click on some of the reviewers by clicking through the, the open peer review links, uh, you'll find reviewers that have reviewed you know, more than once with us uh, openly, so their name is associated on their profile page with the paper they reviewed. And then they're given you know, effectively contribution points um, mm. for having done that. And, and what you hear, of course, a lot in the world is that people, reviewers get no credit for having done an anonymous review. You know, nobody knows they even did it because mm. they were anonymous. Uh, even if they choose to provide their name, still nobody knows they ever did it because you know, their name is never published anywhere. The, the journal doesn't recognize them. And so increasingly people are wondering, well, what is the point of doing a review? I can't put it on my, my resume. Mm-hmm. I don't get any, any um, kudos or credit for it. And so we think this is, a, this is a way to do that. If you provide your name, and then even if the author chooses you know, not to publish the reviews, you're still credited as a reviewer. Um, and so you know, if eventually there will be you know, almost a leaderboard of the most, you know, the most active peer reviewers in certain subject areas, and you can put that on your resume. You know, mm-hmm. You'll be able to say... I reviewed paper ABC, and here's the evidence, here are the links, you know, here's you know, the quality of, of my work, uh, and so on. And So, again, we hope over the long term that that's, that's a natural incentive to naturally encourage people to go the, um, you know, the openly named route. Well, let's t- I'd like to talk for a moment about an interesting piece of content uh, from Peer J uh, that was just recently published, and it seemed to have some particularly uh, interesting things to say to scientific publishers. This was all about a reproducibility of research and how what authors call the poor uh, identifiability of research resources from findings published in journal articles kind of limits that, you know, the ability to, to reproduce. Could you talk a bit about that paper and your own thoughts on its implications from your point of view as a publisher? Yeah, and you're right. That is a it's a fascinating paper. Um, what the authors did is is they said, well, one of the problem potential problems with the lack of reproducibility of science is perhaps people just can't identify the reagents or the materials, the resources that are used within the experiment. And so they they went out to a large number of papers and they identified, I think, almost 1,700 um, instances of the mentioning of a resource in the paper. And then they tried to uniquely identify that resource, you know, be it, you know, a chemical assay or, a, a, you know, a genetic strain of mice or, or whatever it is. And they found that they could only identify about 50% of, of these, these resources, meaning the 50% are unidentifiable, even with a, you know, a targeted search from experts. Um, and, of course, the implication is then that how can anyone reproduce those experiments if, if they can't find, as it were, the raw materials that we use to, to perform the experiment, if, if they can't reproduce the resources? This is a big problem at the moment in publishing. And there's been a number of studies recently that show that, that many you know, published findings just cannot be reproduced. Um, Nature have been all over this. There was, there was a big Amgen study that, that looked into it. Your question as well is, as a publisher, you know, what are its implications to 
to what I do, you know, this is this is a scary thing. As, as a publisher, <laughs> we often tell people that we we add true value to content as it moves through our hands. But if if what we're publishing um, is so incomplete in many cases as to be essentially useless, we, we really didn't add any value. You know, we could have added value there. We could have really enforced hmm. um, very clear descriptions of every reagent and. And publishers have been very good at this in the past, for instance. They, they've enforced these kind of things with, for instance, clinical trials, um, console checklist, or systematic reviews. Uh, Prisma is the thing there. So um, publishers have, have realized this is a problem in other fields and, and really stepped up to the plate and, as it were, refused to publish papers unless they meet these certain reporting requirements. And, and so I think this is a bit of a wake-up call that um, perhaps this is a place that we should be doing something similar uh, going forwards. The, the authors have actually put their guidelines up on the Force 11 website, and um, we've already adopted those guidelines. So we now recommend those guidelines to our authors hmm. um, if they're submitting a paper. You know, you talked a little bit uh, earlier uh, about your about the journey you've taken, and I'd like to sort of close by returning to that. You've had a long career in publishing, as you noted, with traditional publishers, with PLOS One, and now with PeerJ. You talked about you know, some of the differences in terms of cost structure, but I wonder if you could comment on the differences you've found in your own work as you've moved through these different organizations and how you're thinking about scientific publishing and what's important about the role of publishing has evolved over time. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's an interesting question because, like I said, I've been around for about 20 years and, and effectively I've spanned, you know, the digital the digital era, which I think is, is an interesting breakpoint here. So, when I started publishing, you know, in the early 90s or whenever it was, um, the online publishing had barely started. You know, it was this, this newfangled thing that we have a website. And, of course, here we are today. You know, one of the sort of end games of that digital revolution has been the development of the open access movement because it's in part based on the assumption that you can distribute content very freely. You, know, you don't have to ration it out because the cost of distribution or, or even of creation is so high that, that it's something that has to be you know, preciously conserved. You, you can almost put it out into the world at, at less cost on, on the Internet. So I've, I've seen that transition happen. And, and what I've seen, I think, then is I've seen publishers start to adapt in, in many ways. That they have moved from you know, 20, 30 years ago being a, a, a body, as it were, that does try to ration content out because it's very expensive to create or, or distribute to sort of the point where we are now where you're a sort of a serious open access publisher is more in the mindset of, of something like a midwife, you know, something that professionally takes a piece of work and delivers it into the world into, in the best possible state you know, with the widest possible chances of success and adoption and reuse and, and, and readership. Um, and so I think that's where publishers are going. I think they're becoming a group that is, is professional and very good at getting high-quality content out there as broadly and, and as effectively as possible. And, and that's where I'd like to see the profession go, definitely. Well, Peter Binfield, thanks very much. Thank you. No, it's, uh, it's great to have the chance to speak to you. Thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for September 18th, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. 
You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appetit.